0: Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues.
1: This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening Colour in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Good
0: morning. This is Jazz Shapers. I'm Elliot Moss. Jazz Shapers is where the shapers of business meet the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. My guest today, I'm extremely proud and privileged to say, is Tony Wheeler, none other than the co-founder of Lonely Planet. Not just the travel guides, but the Bibles for backpackers and upscale travellers alike. And me too. Personally, I can vouch for that many times over many years. Growing up in Bournemouth, Pakistan, the Bahamas and the US, Tony Wheeler met his future wife Maureen apparently on a bench in Regent's Park. In 1972 they honeymooned jumping in a mini-traveller, planning to travel east as far as that £65 car could carry them. That dirt-cheap car carried us all the way to Afghanistan, Tony says. They continued to Australia and while living in Sydney found people asking about their adventure and for travel tips. They founded Lonely Planet Publications in 1973 in order to publish Across Asia on the Cheap, the story of their journey. Then, bags packed, they were off again, their real breakthrough coming with the India Guidebook in 1981. As Tony says, it was three times as big, three times the price, and sold three times as many copies as previous titles. We were really betting the whole shop on it. They grew Lonely Planet over the next 30 years into an empire, the world's largest independent guidebook publisher, before finally selling it to BBC Worldwide and supporting Lonely Planet's shift into a multi-platform brand. We'll talk to Tony in a few minutes about all of this, about where the name Lonely Planet comes from, about Planet Wheeler, the foundation Morin and he set up to support projects alleviating poverty, and lots more. We've also got brilliant music from, amongst others, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, Antonio Adolfo, and Etta James. That is today's Jazz Shapers. Here's Snarky Puppy with Amortella with Magda Gianocco. A snarky puppy with a mortella with Magda Giannico, if I said it properly. My business shaper, as I said earlier, is Tony Wheeler. He's the patron saint of travel, I think they call him. Um, And he has been the man behind, along with his wife, um, The Lonely Planet. Hello. It's fantastic to have you here in person, real. Good morning. I know that um, I will be in the queue of thousands of people that meet you of a certain age that go, you're Tony Wheeler. You're the guy who helped me get around and then insert country. What does that feel like all these years later? Because this is something that obviously is kind of goes back. Where are we now? Fifty years or so?
2: Yeah. Well, generally it's very nice because I I've got a very low key fame that you know I'm not going to get recognised in the streets, and and lots of people have no idea who I am at all. But equally, lots of people, if you explain who I am, they say, "Oh, yeah." And as you say, you know, they've travelled with the Lonely Planet guidebooks; they know what the story is. And it, you know, it it happened to me just a a week or so ago in Armenia. Um, I'd walking up to this thing in um, Tatev is a cable car that goes up the hill. And there was a woman sitting there going going through this Lonely Planet guide so assiduously. She had little markers on every page of what she was doing. And usually I, I wouldn't sort of introduce myself. I I do that very, very rarely, but I thought this time I would. And she was from Jordan. You know, so we got a woman from Jordan. She's traveling in Armenia and she'd been everywhere. You know, you couldn't name a place she hadn't been to. And, you know, it was was really happy that I'd um, introduced my I autographed the book all this sort of stuff but that's that's really nice that's a that's a nice low-key sort of fame.
0: Many people have passions and hobbies and obviously I mean I'm going to talk lots about travel and what travel does for the soul uh, as well as many other things. How did it come about that you saw the opportunity to convert what was a passion and a love into a business?
2: You know it, it was luck more than anything else that, that we'd traveled we'd done the the hippie trail, the Asia overland trip. we'd, And it was fantastic. I still look back. That was the the great experience of my life. As, as a lot of trips are, when they're big trips and you're young, they have a really great impact on you. And that was definitely like that. But we had trouble finding the information there. You know, it wasn't available the way it is today. After Lonely Planet came along, there were all sorts of guidebooks, and if you were going anywhere, you could find a guidebook about it. Now you pick up your phone or your tablet or your laptop, and you go online, and you you find all the information you want instantly. But in those days, it wasn't available. And we just thought, well, we could put this down on paper and make something out of it.
0: And in terms of what always struck me was, obviously, for anyone that knows Lonely Planet, and again, you're one of those businesses that most people, the names, most people have heard of, and needs little introduction – But it's the granularity, it's the specificity, it's the care. It's the, if you go to this, and I recall this from Indonesia, somewhere in Jogjakarta around 1990, go to this place, but don't eat there. When you leave, when you've had, you've slept, make sure you go out, turn left, and a couple of streets on the right, you'll find this cafe, and for nine, whatever it was, rupiah, you'll get this. How did you get the people to, I mean, but you're laughing because it's absolutely true. You would have have said exactly that. How did you find those people who were like-minded and cared enough to, to, to write that sort of stuff?
2: Well, I, I guess I was that person to start with, that i have been accused of being a, a record keeper, someone who's always jotting things down and taking notes and so on. And then the people who came along and wrote Lonely Planet books, they'd sort of fallen in love with the books and they wanted to do the same thing. So you were you were preaching to the converted, really. I can't believe how many people... Nowadays, I guess Lonely Planet is much more scientific about it and you'd look for people with the right degrees. If they're going to write about Asia, they've got some sort of degree in Asian history or politics or speak the languages and things. But at first, it was just very much people popping up and saying, hey, I've travelled a lot, I've used your books, I really like what they do, I'd like to do the same thing for some area that I'm familiar with.
0: You mentioned, of course, the obvious point about information. And back in 1989, when I was traveling a lot and I was a teenager, the only information you had about a country was the Lonely Planet and then the competitors that came up. Now, as you said, fortunately and unfortunately, you press a button and you get it. What's that done to our sense of adventure as human beings, do you think?
2: Well, it's it's been good and bad. You know, there's there's no question that the the feeling that you're the pioneer going out there and no one's been here before, that's gone because... You can just look it up and you'll find dozens of people who've been there before. And I always say, whenever you go and do something, you find someone else has done it in a more exciting fashion. You know, you get out of your four-wheel drive thinking, God, that was quite a trip to drive here. And somebody immediately turns up on a bicycle. And where do you, you bought the bicycle in the bazaar in some town, you know, it, it just blows you away. So there, there, there's that element. But equally, if people want to go and find things and they want to do something different, they're still going to be able to do that. There are so many places in the world where you turn up and people are kind of uh, amazed, what are you doing here? They just can't believe that someone has turned up in their well-off-the-beaten-track location.
0: And there must be loads of places. I mean, you've been to over 140 countries, I think. Is that right? Something like
2: that. I've been to
0: a fair few. A fair few. you probably lost track. It's it's, it's probably a bit like... It's probably a a, good
2: thing to, you know, I'd be accused of being too much of a list ticker if I put a tick beside all of them.
0: But I imagine that if you were to wake up in Armenia and decide to walk down to the local bazaar in wherever you were, you would still find stuff that,
2: Oh yeah, all, is totally all the time. Novel. Yeah, you know, I I don't go anywhere where I'm not astonished and delighted. And I think a lot of that is the fact that you you know we we go to see the the Sydney Opera House or the Taj Mahal or the canals in Venice and you've seen a thousand pictures of them. They've been in every James Bond movie. You know you're you're really familiar with them. And then sometimes you go to places. And really, that was me in Armenia a week ago. That I, I knew about Armenia. I've read about it. I, we know about the Armenian genocide and, you know, the bad relations with Turkey, all these things. Um, But you sort of, you forget that Christianity started where Israel and Palestine are today. But it didn't move west into Europe, first of all. It moved east. It moved into Syria, Lebanon, the countries that are Syria and Lebanon today, and Armenia. Mm. And you go around Armenia and there's these amazing churches dating back to the 6th century. And they're all, you know, it's situated in some gorge with a mountain behind them. They're spectacular. And are,
0: I, are you the guy that would, have, would read about the history and the politics and the economics and society before you go to a place, when you're in the place or when you come home?
2: All three. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm really not really good at knowing everything about a place before I go there. I, sometimes I am, but very often I sort of go and it's, you know, I'm learning it as I go along. I, I do know something about it any place I go to. But always afterwards, you think, well, I must learn some more about that. I must read this book or that book. And so you do. It's a constant education.
0: And in terms of um, the effect that travel has on the world, because, again, way back in the 90s, I was in these Gilly islands, ghillie air, Gilly troangan, again, probably with The Lonely Planet tucked under my right arm. And they were unspoilt. I've now heard people twenty years later. Of course, I'd forgotten. They go, oh well, there's there's hotels there. There's this. I'm like, what? There was nothing there. Yeah. Obviously, Uh, I mean, what's your perspective on that
2: piece? Oh, look, it's it it is no way. It is not a problem. And we we talk now about flight shame. It's a Swedish word, fligskam, or something. Um, And you know, and we're we're ashamed of going places. And we're and it's a it's quite correct because we are loving the world to pieces in some ways. You know, we. We just want to go and see these things. You want to go there, and sometimes with genuine interest, and sometimes just I want to get away for the weekend, that sort of thing. So there, there is a problem that I we've got. We live on a fragile planet, and it's the only one we're going to get. It is a lonely planet, in that effect. There aren't any more we can we can move to. So yeah, that there is that problem, and you do go to places, and you're astonished how much they're changed. I think the Gili Islands off Lombok would be a a very good example that you know I, I've been there once when it just started to open up, and I've I've never been back, and I think I'd be kind of scared if I did. But I, I am going to another island in in Indonesia in a couple of months' time, which I've been meaning to get to Sumba. I've been meaning to get to for ages, and really, when I didn't get there, if I had got there at the time, I'd have been the only foreigner on the island, sort of thing. And I know it's not that way anymore. You can fly there directly from. Denpasar in Bali and there's lots of hotels you can stay in and you can find them online and you know that's another place that's changed but equally I go to lots of places and I think of the Croatian coast which I've traveled down a couple of times in recent years and the the little towns are wonderful and you get on the ferry that goes from one island to the next and it's a great experience and so it's still good
0: stay with me to find out why the lonely planet is indeed called the lonely planet and why it was tony not quite hearing the lyrics of a song that's coming up after your little words of advice and big words of advice i hope from our program partners at mishkondorea for your burgeoning business
3: hi my name's nadim mir and i'm a partner at Condoraire in the private equity team A key thing to be thinking about if you are looking to raise funds is given that it is maybe less difficult than it used to be to raise the money, if you do have a good growth story, then actually you are in a pretty good position to maybe be a bit more choosy as to who you partner with. Um, And I think a key thing to remember is that when you go into this relationship with an investor or group of investors, you do need to see it as very much like a relationship—it is effectively a marriage of sorts. And obviously, we know the best sorts of marriages tend to be the ones where both sides uh, go in with their eyes open, um, and they're both supportive parties to uh, to the marriage, um, and where people think they can work well together. So it's not necessarily about the party that's going to leave you with the most equity or the one with the biggest checkbook. It's about the party who you are going to get on well with, work well with, and hopefully, i say, live happily ever after with.
1: Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal.
0: You can hear all our former Jazz Shapers and indeed hear this programme again with Tony by asking Alexa to play Jazz Shapers and there you can find many of the recent programmes or if you pop Jazz Shapers into iTunes the full archive awaits that's almost 400, I can't believe it's true but 400 fantastic guests and later in the year we'll be talking about our exciting plans for 2020 but back to today's guest, as I said it's Tony Wheeler co-founder of Lonely Planet, the travel guide Bibles so why is it called Lonely Planet? I should have asked earlier but I got so excited and carried away by your presence
2: I forgot (laughs) <laughs> it, it was a mistake. We we'd done a <laughs> Which is great. It was just an error idiot. We marked it. An up. error. We we done the we the first book was sort of finished and it was all set to go to the printer and we had a title for it and the only thing we didn't have was a name for the the, the business, the publishing house. And I, I remember we, we were Maureen almost said, you know, Well, why do we need a name? And I said, Someone's gonna have to write something on the check. And she said, People are gonna pay for this. So we, we were in a little restaurant, we were in Sydney. Where where we did that first book, we were in a little restaurant. We'd had too much red wine. We were kicking around names, and we'd just been to see that wonderful rock and roll band on the road movie, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, Joe Cocker, Leon Russell, lots of other people, and it. it's still it's still fan, fantastic music. And in in that uh, that film, and on that that music, um, Joe Cocker sings a song called Space Captain, and the first line of the song is. Once while traveling across the sky, this lonely planet caught my eye. And I said to Maureen, doesn't that that sound good? We'd just seen the movie a week before. Lonely planet. Why don't we call it Lonely Planet? And she said, great idea, except actually Mr. Cocker sings Lovely Planet. <laughs> so it's been a mistake all these years.
0: <laughs> and it works really well. It's a
2: good mistake. It's yeah? a very,
0: very good mistake. Now, from the from the incredible things that travel gives you, it gives you perspective, it opens your eyes, appreciation of culture and, and, and just everything. I mean, it puts you in, in your place in a way in the world, and it's a good thing. The business, this business. Became more than just a wonderful thing to do and a great name, and you know, drinking too much red wine. I mean, it became a serious entity. Tell me about those first few years when you realised there was a tipping point from this is enjoyable to actually we're going to make a living on this.
2: Well, you know, I I was sort of convinced about it right away because I could sort of sense people's enthusiasm for what we'd done. That you know, that very first book, which was hopeless, really. I mean, we (laughs) we didn't leave. We didn't leave London thinking, let's drive to Afghanistan, carry on to Australia and make a guidebook company out of it. It was only after we got to Australia that we thought, hey, this could be something. So the first book wasn't planned at all, whereas the second book was totally planned. We set off, we're going to go around Southeast Asia, we're going to spend a a year researching it, we're going to do the best guidebook anybody has ever seen to Southeast Asia. which is no problem at all because nobody had ever seen a guidebook to Southeast Asia. You asked Americans about it and they'd say, it's a war zone. No one goes there on holiday. So it was a change at that point. But it was like any small business for quite a while. The most fraught years, it seems to me, are with, with small businesses, uh, you know, when you, all you've got to do is pay, your, not even pay yourself. It's only yourself, or in, the, in our case, my wife Maureen and I, just the two of us. If we didn't get paid, big deal. You, you ate a bit less in the coming week. <laughs> but when you've got people working for you, then suddenly it's a whole different ballgame. And when, when you've got 100 people working for you, it's probably no problem because, you know, the bank's going to somehow get the money. But when there's only two or three, mm. then you really do get some sleepless nights.
0: And when did the sleepless nights become a bit calmer and when was the scale
2: happening? Yeah, really when we got to about – it was really about 10 people. Once we got to about 10 people, we could see it was working by that point. And it was still a very small business. But we – I remember one of the occasions in those early years was when I bought a – not a new car – but not such an old, second-hand used car. I got a car that didn't break down every time I drove anywhere. And that felt like, wow, this is progress. You know, I can, <laughs> I can drive somewhere relatively comfortably.
0: In terms of that, I mean, obviously what happens when you grow a business is you become more successful. You can buy the slightly less bad car, and then the slightly less bad car turns into quite a nice car and so on and so forth. In order to connect with your environment when you're traveling... What's your perspective on the luxury end and the super kind of uh, insulated from the world end versus the you know slamming it for five five quid a night
2: you know the lonely planet's always going to carry this sort of ethos of being the backpackers' guides and the five quid a night thing uh, curiously it doesn't everywhere because we lonely planet is in a whole bunch of languages and the the two that kind of fascinate me the most one of course is China that you know young Chinese are traveling like like crazy, and they, they want to do it. It's one of those things they really want to do. And in a way, it's like stepping back in the West 30, 40 years. You know, young, young Chinese, they haven't they haven't got an older brother who did it, or their parents certainly didn't do it. Their parents didn't leave the town where Mao assigned them to. So there's, there's that real sort of enthusiasm for it in China. And the other which I really like is Italy, where Lonely Planet came along a little bit later, and by that point it had sort of stepped a little bit away from that backpacker, five quid a night thing. So in Italy, Lonely Planet's looked upon as being a bit sort of stylish. And there's more Lonely Planet guides in Italian than than any other guidebook publisher in Italy. And I, I go to Italy fairly regularly for the people who do the translations of them. And I always have a great time there. There's so many Lonely Planet enthusiasts in Italy. And I've got virtually no Italian, but it doesn't seem to matter. (laughs) <laughs> so that that's that's really fun that's really rather nice. But yeah, they you know they were for a long time looked upon very much as the the backpackers guides and for a long time you know I that's what I did I just went to the backpacker places but gradually as I got older and a little more affluent and as the the people who used the books became looking at things in with a wider perspective they the books began to change. But I keep telling people there's You you go to places where you can have all the money in the world. Best hotel in town is five quid a night. And you're going to be staying in that and it's not going to have air conditioning and it's not going to have your own bathroom. But if you want to go there, that's what's available.
0: So you sell the 75% of your business to BBC Worldwide in 2007, now 12 years ago. It's a serious... Yeah, absolutely, it's a surprise and it's gone fast. What did that feel like? Was it a sense of loss? Was it a sense of exuberance,
2: both? Yeah, yeah, again, it was both. That... It, it, businesses are like kids, you know. They they grow up and they have to they have to leave home and make their own life. But nevertheless, with kids, you you will forevermore keep worrying about them. And phone call comes, and you know they're on the phone, and you, your first thought is, oh, what's gone wrong. And usually it isn't, most of the time, 99.99% of the time, it's nothing gone wrong at all. But nevertheless... They just and, want money. They just want money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as long as they don't... <laughs> you know what?
0: Not. We're happy with that. We don't mind. If they want a few quid, that's all right. The problems are stressful.
2: Yeah, so there's that. And the business is the same way. You know, if I went out and, I, and it does happen, I pick up a Lonely Planet guide and I'm not happy with it and I'm thinking, oh, why did they do it that way? So the, the, you will be involved with it, even though it's not your baby anymore. Forevermore, so there there was that sort of sense of loss. On the other hand, it was it was time to go because we it wasn't going to be this sort of family dynasty that we. My kids are doing their own thing. They didn't want to become guidebook publishers like us, and the the the, the whole sort of ethos of the business was changing. And I loved it when it, I loved the books. I loved putting them together. I loved the research of them. I loved recruiting the team who'd go out and do them. I loved the travel. And then it was getting into a more digital era. And I, I'm on the internet as much as anybody else, but it's not my first love. Mm. And I think with any business, it's got to be your first love. It's got to be something that you are really passionate about. And if you're not really passionate about it, you're you're not there.
0: And, and did you feel, apart from the fact that your kids weren't going to take over and so on, did you feel that passion waning because it wasn't paper anymore and it was digital and that was a different game?
2: Well, yeah, well, it wasn't. The, my passion was still there, but I could see the business was changing mm. and I wasn't going to be at the core of where the business was going to be
0: was that um, a tough thing to realize was that quite straightforward
2: no you? you know really it was quite straightforward i think you know we uh, we had a wonderful time with lonely planet and i a lot of other people did as well i i regularly run into people who work for us and a lot of them i know really well but others you know they say i worked for you for five years and they, i don't remember you but <laughs> I, mean, I was in the u.s office or i was somewhere else sort of thing or Or even though we were in the same office, but paths didn't cross. But other people, you know, I know who were there. And I said that those 10 years I was with LP, they were the best 10 years of my working life. You know, I still look upon that as being a highlight of the things I did. And that's great. If you know, it was a highlight of my life as well. I can't argue with that.
0: And yet you managed to calmly know when it was right to step away. What's your advice to... Other founders who 've brought their baby up, brought it into the world, nurtured it, and they just won 't let go
2: yeah, well I, I think you know when people tell you it 's time to let go, there might be one thing, <laughs> and we do everything I think everything in business you do it too late you should, you should have done it a year earlier or whatever, uh, and we did that all the time with people we you know we got away without having an accountant around the place for far too long. You know, we should have had an accountant there a year earlier or maybe five years earlier, and the same with I'm sure Lenny Pat have been sued at some point, but the legal thing, apart from the regular business things, never became a serious problem but when we finally did get a you know a lawyer on staff full time, why didn't we get her years earlier?
0: Is there something though slightly kind of you didn't want to being being professional is the wrong thing because you look at the books they are super professional, but it feels like you wanted that the purity of it was the writing the rest you know, of it was like a bit of an impediment that you eventually had to deal with is that is
2: yeah that... And it, you know and I, I know what's going to happen that the the way the books were at one point when they just covered everything and the fact that it, the fact that it didn't make any financial and marketing and business sense was unimportant we just wanted to be out there and you know dot every i and cross every t and that that's obviously going to change because you just cannot do that anymore because there's so many competing sources of information so the the books and are not going to be the way that I really loved them in their in their prime. I've, I've often suggested to them, you know, you could put some of the old books back into, not into print, but make them available on online in some way that they're, they're really quite expensive. That You know, someone who really wants to know about what that country in Africa was like 30 years ago when you could travel around because you can't do that anymore could go back to that old book and look at it and you'd probably go there and find the same guest houses are open despite the... Civil War and everything else
0: only planet revisited with a premium of 200 percent you'd make yeah, a ton of money de- I'd definitely. buy that you got me one, one extra person <laughs> I'd pay for it as well <laughs> we're in the queue final chat come up with Tony plus we've been playing a track from Meta James stay with me that's all coming up in just a moment here on Jazz FM
1: Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM in partnership with Mish it's business but it's personal <laughs>
0: That was Etta James with I'd Rather Go Blind. I am with Tony Wheeler just for a few more minutes. So now you're still involved a little bit, I read. You kind of get, you know, you obviously got an opinion. And as you said, it's like you'd love more where there, were, where there was 100 lines on a hundred on lines on a part of the world. There's now two lines and that doesn't work as well for you and, and all that. What else are you doing at the moment, Tony?
2: Well, I do a lot of travel because I, I enjoy travel. And, the, the, you know, it's always somewhere new I haven't been. I'm on the board, I'm having a meeting next week of a thing called Global Heritage Fund, which is a California-based archaeology organization. And their take on it is you've got to involve a, a local community in the archaeological site, and that essentially means tourism. So I'm their sort of tourism expert, perhaps. And I find that really interesting. I get to go to lots of places that have interesting archaeological sites and very often meet the archaeologist who dug it up, and that's... That's fantastic. But we've also got a... Lonely Planet had a foundation. It was called um, called the Lonely Planet Foundation. And it was basically putting money back into the countries that Lonely Planet did books about. You know, it's, it's fine doing a book on Italy or France or the UK or USA. There's They're rich countries. But a lot of Lonely Planet's story was in places that aren't rich countries. So we set up this foundation that put a percentage of Lonely Planet's annual profits back into the countries we did books about when we sold Lonely Planet, we couldn't say, oh, by the way, you've also bought this charity. So we pulled the Lonely Planet Foundation out of Lonely Planet, renamed it the Planet Wheeler Foundation, put quite a lot of the money that we got from selling the business into it. And now it runs 60 or 70 projects around the developing world, education and health mainly.
0: You don't strike me as someone who's very interested in the money.
2: No, you know, I've got all the money I ever need. And I I don't need the next, you know, the fastest car or the private jet or something. I'm... It's bad enough flying there anyway, let alone doing it in a private jet. So yeah, I mean, the money I've, I'm have I'm very comfortable. I don't I never worry about paying my credit card bill at the end of the month, but nor nor do I try and max it out. I'm not a fashion junkie or anything like that.
0: And travel, right? Is there a country you haven't been to that you'd really want to go to?
2: <laughs> There's a stack of them. Come and, on, give
0: me the number. It's a bit well, yeah, like books the, next to your bed, isn't it? But yeah, the first yeah. The, the one
2: the that nice? I always list, uh, and I've said it far too many times, is Yemen. So I've been to every country in that region, you know, all the countries, you know, in the Persian or Arabian Gulf. And, you know, I've, I've been all around there. But for some reason, I've never got to the Yemen. And in a way, it's one of the countries there that's fascinated me the most. This mud skyscrapers. And of course, the place has been, it's either been a war zone or teetering on the edge of being a war zone. Or it's been peaceful for a year. And I've just never taken the opportunity to get there when it was peaceful. And now, of course, it's a war zone. We can feel guilty about that as well.
0: There's a lot to feel guilty about in general on on these international matters. Um, It's been really a genuine pleasure talking to you. It's taken me back to so many trips, which is lovely. And I'm sure people are listening and they heard you talking about these different countries. It's apparent that the passion for travel is is so important to you. It's so central to your life. And it's amazing you made a business out of it. That's the bit everyone's jealous about, by the way. I'm sitting here going, that would have been good. Just before I let you go, and I know you're off next week to Australia, so I I feel lucky that you're here in London. Just before I let you go, what's your song choice and why have you chosen
2: it? It's a record by a band called Ram, and Ram are based in Haiti. In fact, they're based not just in Haiti, but in the Olufsen Hotel in Port-au-Prince. And the Olufsen Hotel was the hotel known as the Hotel Trianon in um, Graham Greene's The Comedians. And I've stayed there and I'm swimming in the swimming pool and I'm thinking, well, this is where the the body of Dr Philpop was found after he committed suicide by not only slashing his wrist but cutting his throat as well. He didn't want Papa Doc to get him. Um, But the (laughs) Olufsen today is this run-down sort of ridiculous hotel every Thursday night... This band called Ram plays there, and it's voodoo jazz. And it is just... It goes on to all hours of the night, and it is just fantastic. And you can get Ram records without any trouble at all. And we chose a track called Negre Catier (laughs) Morin.
0: That was Negres Katia Moren from RAM, the song choice of my business shaper today, Tony Wheeler, as he recounted his story of Haiti. Talk about someone who understood the importance of business being all about your first love. If you really love it, you will absolutely do brilliantly. And almost as important at the other end of it, when the business is coming to a point where you need to move on, you need to know when it's time to let go. Two really brilliant, brilliant thoughts from my business shaper today. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a great weekend.
1: Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal.
0: We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. Or head over to mishkon.com forward slash Jazz Shapers.